If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. And uh, we are in a series of messages that we're calling Enemies of the Heart. And we are in the Gospel of Luke. And today we're going to look at uh, the parable of the prodigal son today. And, uh, you know, this, I, I don't think, I, as I was preparing this message, I, I don't think there's a passage of Scripture, certainly there's not a parable in Scripture that really communicates the love and the grace of God quite like this, this parable does. Uh, we, we, in this parable, we see uh, the breadth and the length and the depth and the width of the grace of God in, in, in such an amazing way. And so, um, you know, volumes and volumes and volumes have been written on this. And, um, and so it's really because it's so rich and the implications are so huge. And so all we're going to do today is just literally just scratch the surface uh, with this parable. It's an amazing parable. So uh, what, we, what we like to do is, is we like to, to stand out of reverence for the word of God today. So I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you stand? Uh, I'm going to read the first couple of verses and then we're going to skip down uh, to verse 11 and read, read this amazing parable. We'll begin at, at Luke 15 verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him to hear him And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. I'll skip down to verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father while he was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, "Bring, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now when, the, now, when his older son was in the field, and, he, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, you know, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet... Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. 
And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this is your brother who was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. So what's happening in this passage? Jesus Jesus is speaking to a group of Jewish religious leaders. He's speaking to Pharisees and and the teachers of the religious law, the scribes. And they're really frustrated with Jesus because he he spends time with sinners. He spends time time with pagans and prostitutes and pimps and tax collectors. And and so... uh, this just this totally just ticked the Jewish religious leaders off, and so uh, they asked him, "Why do you receive sinners like you do?" And so his response is the entire chapter fifteen of Luke. He he gives them three parables back to back to back, and so the Pharisees are you know beside themselves. They they don't understand why he does this, and they're basically communicating. You you spend time you eat with. You eat with sinners. You eat with people who are far from God. You eat, you eat with people who are lost. You eat with people who are lawbreakers. You eat with people who are immoral. That is basically saying that you, you are friends with them and that you, you accept them. And so Jesus just responds very simply with three parables, back to back to back. He gives them the parable of the, of the lost sheep and then the lost coin and then the lost, and then the lost son. And I think the question is just very simply, what is Jesus trying to say? What's his answer to their, to their grumbling and complaining that he spends time with sinners? And I think, I think there's a lot in this passage. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I mean, I could, I could literally preach 50 weeks on this because it's so huge. The implications are so big for us. But I think specifically, just kind of on the surface level, Jesus wants to communicate to us what it means to be lost, I think he's describing to us in these three parables, and we're going to focus just on one of them, but I think what he's trying to do is describe to us what it means to be spiritually lost people. But he also wants us to see the Father's heart towards lost people. He wants us to see how the Father views those who are lost. And so those are the two things that I want us to look today, but I also want to just just briefly this morning tag it with how do you view the lost? Because I think that's a huge question today, and we'll get there. So let's, let's look at the first one. Let's look at what, is it, what does it mean to be lost? So all three of these parables in Luke 15, they describe something of value that was lost. And, and so Jesus gives an answer to what it really means to be lost, and I believe it absolutely shocks his listeners, and it may even shock us today as we kind of get into it. So what Jesus does is he tells this parable of this father who has these two sons. And so there's an older son and, and a younger son, and the younger son, you know, he, he takes, you know, his share of the inheritance, and, and he goes and he squanders it, and uh, in wild, just kind of you know, raucous living, if you will. And uh, so he's rebelling against his family. He's, he's been disloyal against his family. And then there's the older son who stayed behind, who did everything he's asked to do, and, and he, is, he has fulfilled his duty. And typically, I think when you and I have heard a sermon on this, on this very passage, we'll hear it in this way. We'll hear it uh, presented to us that, um, you know, if, 
if you're living in sin, if, if you're rebelling against, you know, God and you've kind of left home, so to speak, you need to return home. You need to come home, leave your life of sin and, 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 and come back into your right mind like the, the younger son does. And you need to receive the grace of God. And that's typically how we hear this preached. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. That's certainly, uh, you know, a, a, a great message in that. But I think in, in that, we often miss what's going on with the older son. I think we often miss the fact that both sons are lost. That both sons are alienated from their father. That both sons really need to come home. And so we give the spotlight to the younger son... But the older son is just as far away from the father as, as the younger son is. So the younger son goes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance. Which is basically saying, Dad, I really wish you were dead. Because I want my share and I want it now. And the father obliges him. Gives him his share. And he leaves home and, you know, he gives himself to wine, women, and wild living and, and uh and, and that's, that's how he lives. And, and so, but you also have the older son. And if you think about it, the older son is just as preoccupied with the father's stuff as the younger son is. He, he's just as consumed by it, just, just as the younger son is. He, he wants, you know, the father's estate just as much as the younger son. The only difference is the younger son is living in open rebellion and he goes far away. The older son lives in kind of inward rebellion and he stays close by it's really the only difference and you can see it as you as you kind of look in in verse 27 notice notice how Jesus describes this and he said to him you know so the the younger brothers come home and the father's receiving him and so the older older brother kind of hears about this and he asked one of the servants what's going on and he said to him your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But notice the response of the older. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, begged him, beseeched him, exhorted him to come in. But he answered his father, look, look, these many years have I served you. And I never disobeyed your command, he says. Yet you never even gave me a young goat. And uh, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, you know, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now, do you pick, on a, do you pick up on a whiff of attitude there? Is there just a little bit of, of attitude there? there? There certainly is. Now, just think about this. You guys, this is the greatest day in the father's life. I mean, he thought his son was gone. And, and now his son, you know, with the turn of fortune has returned. I mean, this is, this is an amazing day in the life of this father. I mean, those of us who parents, we, we understand this in, in a little bit of way of, of receiving your child back uh, in this way. But the, but the older brother, I mean, he's, he's angry, he's argumentative, he's bitter, and, and he's just obstinate. And he refuses to go in, Jesus tells us. And so the father's, you know, the father is entreating him. And, and I think the question really should be answered, why is he so ticked off? Why is he so angry? And, and I, think there's, I think there's a lot going on here, but I think certainly one angle for this is I think, I think the older son is just so angry that the father would kill the fatted calf for the younger son. And I don't think we, we kind of realize how significant this, the, you know, killing the fatted calf is. It's huge. 
And, uh, you know, and in a society where, you know, their main diet was composed of bread and vegetables, you know, if you, if you had meat, you had reason to celebrate something. There was a reason why you were eating meats. And so it would be very similar to us or, you know, maybe you taking a hundred of your friends to Fogo de Chao downtown and eating every night of the week and you're going to pick up the tab. It's very similar to that. And so that's exactly what's going on. And so the son is, is mad. He's angry that the father is spending, you know, his estate on this kind of thing. And so what the older son is doing is he's comparing himself and he feels superior to the younger son. And uh, he's definitely disconnected from his father's heart. He's, he doesn't even consider where his father's heart really is. He's, he's absolutely disconnected. So what in the world is happening here? You've got two sons, right? You've got, you've got a really bad son. And you've got a good son, right? You've got a really bad son who, you know, who took his family fortune and just broke with the family and left and just wasted it, completely disloyal. Uh, but you have an older son who stayed home and did what he was supposed to do and followed the rules and fulfilled all, you know, completed all of the work and, and uh, kept all of the commands. He was busy serving his father. You've got, you've got a bad son and you have a good son. But here's the truth, church. They're both lost. They're both lost. They're both far from God. They're both alienated from the Father. And I think the question is, is what is the point that Jesus is really trying to make here? And I think the point that he's trying to make is he's showing us what it means to be lost. He's describing what it means to be lost. And he's giving us a picture of lostness in two different people. One who's very bad, but also one who's very good. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to say. He's trying to help us to see that, that both sons are trying to save themselves. They're looking for salvation. And one is looking for it by being bad, and the other is looking for it by being really good. Now let's, let me just kind of break this down for us a little bit. Let's think about the younger son. Isn't it true that he's trying to find salvation through partying and through pleasure? And possessions. Isn't it true that, you know, that he's living the high life? I mean, it's Michelob time, right? And uh, that's the kind of life that he is living. And doesn't the world tell us this? Aren't we bombarded with the messages of the culture and the messages of the world that if you will pursue comfort and you will pursue pleasure, you will find life and happiness. If you will sell out to it you will find the joy and the happiness that, that life has to offer. And you guys, people buy it all day long. They give themselves to this all day long. It's, it, is, it is a promise of salvation. And we, we accept it and give ourselves to it in complete faith. I mean, think about the messages that the culture sends to us. You know, one of them is, if it feels good, do it. Right? Isn't that one of the messages? Live by your feelings. Live to feel good. Live to feel, you know, live to feel pleasure. Give your entire life to feeling good. If it feels good, do it. There's no rules. It's just whatever you think are the rules. And even Sprite has joined in. You know, they, they've told us for years, obey your thirst. Follow your desires. 
Let them lead you. Let them tell you where you need to go on life's journey. Obey your thirst. Obey your, what, you know, what makes you uh, obey fulfilling your appetites. You know, Burger King tells us, have it your way, right? And we hear, we hear this all the time, have it your way. This is what I want. You guys, this is the American dream right here. This is it. And, and what it is, is it's called hedonism. It's salvation through hedonism. And hedonism is really just the belief that, that says seeking pleasure is the highest good of life. That seeking comfort, seeking an easy life, is, is, it should be the highest goal of your life. And the promise is if you give yourself to the pursuit of pleasure, if you will put your trust in it, it will save you. Because you will feel good. You know, I was reading about a, a Russian man, I'm not making this up, 2006, this Russian man, his name was Vladimir Vilosov, and uh, he, he designed his own casket. He, he, uh, he designed his own coffin to accommodate his vast collection of pornography. And his, his, his quote from the article was, uh, the girls in these magazines have been my companions for years. I want them to accompany me in the next life. You know what that is? That's salvation through hedonism, isn't it? He believes, he has faith that those magazines will bring him happiness in the next life. And so... And so that's what the world tells us. And we're bombarded with this every single day. Every media message just about puts this front and center for us as an option. So that's just the younger son. But you know, there's an older son. And so we can try to save ourselves through being really, really bad, through being hedonists, right? But we can also try to save ourselves and find salvation through being really, really good. Think about the older son. He has worked really hard all of his life. He's done what he's been asked to do. He's fulfilled his duties. He's done his chores. He got up when he didn't feel like getting up. He worked when he didn't feel like working. He obeyed to the letter of the law. He went all the way. And there's something driving that. And, and uh, he even told his father, he said, look, these many years I've served you. And he says, I've never disobeyed your command. Never. I've never disobeyed your command. Now, isn't that good Hoosier theology right there? I mean, as Hoosiers living in central Indiana, isn't that what being a Hoosier is all about? What, what do we do? We work hard. We're faithful to our families. We go to work. You know, we provide for our families. Um, we go to church. We pay our taxes. Uh, we do what we're supposed to do. Um, and we think as a result of that, God owes us something. We've been faithful and God owes us a reward. He owes us blessing. And I think what Jesus is trying to help us to see in, in both, of these, both of these sons, he's trying to help us see that there, are, there, are, there is a way to be lost. And, and lostness can be defined in being very bad or being very good. That the, that the road to hell is paved with efforts of being bad and efforts to being very good. Do you believe that? Now, I just woke some of you up. Because what do we think? What, what do we naturally think? Oh, well, God could never send good people 
to hell, right? He can't, he can't do that. I think that's what he's saying. That that's what it means to be lost. Now, obviously, if you clearly giving yourself to wine, women, and wild living, that's sinful, right? I mean, what the younger, what the younger son is doing is he's making pleasure the ultimate, the ultimate pursuit, when only God is ultimate. He's taking pleasure, which is God's gift to us, and turning it into an ultimate thing where it becomes higher than God. That's called idolatry and that sin. And what it did in the parables, it broke the heart of the father. So much so that the younger son had to confess his wrong and his, his hurt of the father. That's why, that's why he asked for forgiveness. But clearly the older son is also alienated from his father by his, his actions. By, by doing, you know, by trusting in his goodness. And, and by staying home and being faithful and knowing that he's faithful and thinking that he's faithful. See, that's, that's, that's what he's saying. All these years, I've served you, he says, and I've never disobeyed. See, the older son was trying to do what, what a lot of us try to do. And that is justify ourselves. Isn't it true that, that at some point in all of our lives, we've tried to justify ourselves in some way? We've, we've, we've tried to save ourselves in some way. Um, you know, it could be, you know, by being a really good mom, you know? Well, I serve all organic at our house and I do all essential oils and uh, you know what I mean? And, and we just kind of trust in that. Or as, you know, dads, as husbands, we, well, we, you know, I provide for my family. I, I am so faithful and diligent in providing. Or students, well, I've got a four point, you know, 1000 GPA, you know what I mean? Um, and that, and, or I, I scored five touchdowns in the game. Or, you know, I've been so successful in my business. Or I pastor a really large growing church. And the thought is, if we can just do certain things, we can establish our value as people. Because we really believe our value is based on what we do and what we achieve. And what that's called is it's just salvation by works salvation by achievement and there are a lot of us that have walked that road and I'm at the front of the line there and so it's just an attempt at self-justification it is the thought that my performance proves my worthiness because I do this and I do that and so the Bible says you can do that you can go down that road you know, you, you, can, you can either let Jesus be your justifier or you can let something else be your justifier. But in the end, it's really you trying to justify yourself. And the thing that I know as a pastor is, you know, we try to check things off the spiritual to-do list. Well, you know, I read my Bible today and I attended church today and I made a contribution today and I'm serving in a ministry today. And if we're not careful, what we're trying to do is save ourselves, you know, by what we do. And, and at the heart of it, we're really getting angry at God because we're fulfilling all the duties and we think God owes us, owes us an easy and comfortable life. And that's the source of the anger 
underneath. We look good on the outside, but man, are we disconnected from the Father. And, um, and for somebody who's maybe living this way, Jesus may be your model, he may be your example, but he's not your Savior. You are the Savior because it's all about, it's all about your effort. Now, the thing about this is that it, it has this, when you, when you try to save yourself by living a good life, you're really blinded at the thoughts of your own goodness. And what it does is it keeps you from seeing other people for who they really are. It's called pride. And pride is the ultimate enemy of the heart because pride says, you're God. God's not God, you're God. And you alone are good. And, and the reason why you're good is because of what you've been able to do. And it absolutely blinds you to other people. You can't see other people. You can't see other people's value. You can't, you can't see uh, that they are image bearers of God and they are loved by God. You can't see that at all. You know, I was reading this week um, about a 67-year-old woman who was getting ready. She was getting prepped for cataract surgery. And the, the anesthesiologist was getting ready to kind of numb her eye and they were getting ready to start the procedure. And as she was starting the procedure, she noticed Embedded in the back of her eye were 27 contact lenses, 27. And apparently, according to the ophthalmologist uh, in this article that I read, she, you know, she just got her contact lens lost and she thought it would just popped out of her eye when it was really in the back. So she would just add another one. And then over time, she would add another one. And after, and they don't even know how many years it was in there. Um, but, you know, she would just, she would just do this and say, well, you know, we're just going to move on. No wonder her eye hurt. You know what I mean? 27 different contact lenses in, in one eye. And so this woman had a problem, obviously. And she thought the solution to her problem was adding something else, doing a little bit more. What she really needed was something taken away. What she really needed was the contact lens re removed. You know, what we need to be, what we need removed from us is, is this pride this self, you know, glorifying spirit of look what I've done that blinds us from other people. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. That's why they're asking the question, why do you, sir, why do you hang out with sinners and, you know, and do all of that? They were blinded by their own goodness or the own thought of their own goodness. And it was really pride. And so now, you, you might be here asking, all right, Scott, well, if you can't be saved by really, being really bad, and we know that, and you can't be saved by being really good, how can you be saved? Well, you can be saved by being perfect. That's how you can be saved. You got to be perfect. Because God doesn't ask for goodness. He asks for perfection. And so if you're not perfect enough, just on the off chance that you're not perfect, you can trust the perfection of another, Jesus Christ. And so what saves us is, is not our efforts, but Jesus' efforts. What saves us is not our, you know, facade of perfection, but his reality of, of perfection. That's what saves us. So when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that's what brings salvation to us. Now, Let's look at the Father's love 
for the lost here. So that's, that's, that's at the base of what it means to be lost. But let's look at the Father's love for the lost here. Now, interestingly enough, as I was looking through these parables and just going through the, the commentaries on them, what's interesting about the parable of the sheep and the coin and, and the lost son is they're ascending in value as he works through the parables. So there's a definite escalation in value. There's a, there's a definite progression in value. So a sheep is pretty valuable, but, what's, but it's not as you know, valuable as a lost coin. And a lost coin and a sheep are pretty valuable, but certainly they're not as valuable as, as a lost son. So, so there's, there's something here that, that Jesus wants us to see about God himself, about how he views us as lost people. And so I think that's communicated by the fact of what, you know, what the characters do in these parables to try to find that which is lost. The effort that they go to, to try to recover that which is lost. I think you also see it in just the amount of joy that exists as a result of finding that which is lost. So what you have is you have a shepherd who leaves the 99 just to find one little sheepy. You know, just one little sheep, he leaves the entire flock to, to go. And, and, you know, in the commentaries I was reading, they were talking about how shepherds normally wouldn't do that. They're not going to leave 99 behind to find one. They're going to they're gonna say, well, good luck to you. But not here in this parable. No, he searches and he finds the sheep and he puts it around, puts it around his shoulders and he rejoices. And he goes to see his friends and he, rejo- and he calls them to rejoice with him. Because the sheep has been found. Same thing with the woman and loses this coin. So, so this coin was worth one day's wages. And it was a significant financial loss for her. So, so you definitely see an escalation here. So she lights the lamp. She searches diligently. She sweeps the house. She does three different things to try to find the coin. And when she does, man, she celebrates. But not only do you see that, you definitely see an escalation with the father, you know, with his lost son. Look at verse 20. Um, it says this, By, while he was still a long way off, the younger son's coming home at this point, the father saw him and felt, felt compassion and ran and embraced and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy even to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, Put it on him, put him on, put on the best ring on his hand, the best shoes on his feet, and the best calf that you've got, and let's eat and celebrate. Now, I want you to just think about what the father does. He sees the younger son coming home, he sees him from a distance, he feels compassion, he runs toward him, he embraces him and kisses him. Do you see the escalation there? Do you see how high the stakes are? Do you see the effort that the father makes to bring the, to bring the son home? And the son's got this plan. You know, the son's thinking, okay, I need to apologize. I need to make it right with my dad. And I'm not even worthy to be called a son. He's probably not even going to let me be his son anymore. But dad, if you could just let me be your hired hand. He says, yeah, that's, that's the plan I'll present to, the, to my father. He can't even get it out of his mouth. Before the father is saying, bring the best robe over here, bring the best ring, you know, bring the best, you know, shoes, you know, bring, bring, let's kill the fat, let's just party this thing up. Fargo to chow, here we come, you know, and he's celebrating. 
And of course he restores him back into the family. Why? Because you see the value of that which is lost is now found. That which is far away has been brought near. And you see the heart of a father for his lost son. That's what you see here. And so, and the whole point of this is, you know, what we're reminded of in other scriptures where, you know, when one person changes their mind about sin, when one person is baptized, all of heaven throws a party. You know, all of heaven celebrates. Why? Because of the value of that one person who was lost but is now is found. You see, you see what Jesus is really trying to communicate is his love for lost people. The Father's love for lost people. And, 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 it's, and it's not a merit-based love. It's an unconditional love. It's a perfect love. It's not transactional. We all live in a very conditional world. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You fulfill your end of the deal, I'll fulfill my end. But God's not transactional. God doesn't relate to us on conditions. His love for us is perfect and complete. It doesn't fluctuate every day with the stock market. And so what that means is, God loves you so much. It, it, it's just not based on how well you've been performing and what, where you've been and what pig pen you've been living in lately. It's his love for you is perfect and complete. You, you know when someone loves you, right? When they see you at your worst and they love you and accept you anyway. Isn't that, isn't that love? Of course it is. And that's exactly, what, that's exactly what you have, the picture that Jesus is painting of his father. Now, now, the original question that started all of this was from the religious leaders. Jesus, why do you hang out with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus answered it. And what Jesus is trying to communicate is our view of those who are far from God need, needs to match the father's view, right? Like, like the love that the father has needs to be, you know, reflective in our love for those who are lost. Why? Because we were the lost ones. Because you and I were either the younger son or the older son. We were trying to find salvation through being really bad or we were trying to find salvation by being really good. And it didn't really matter. The Father showed us his love anyway. And so what compels us to love others is the very love of God for us. And the implications of this are huge. They're huge for our church. Absolutely huge for our church. I think, I think one of them is this. I, I, think, I think God calls us, the love of God compels us to love those who are broken, who are addicted, who are far from God, just like the Father does. That's what he's called us to do and to be. You see, the church is really not a hangout for the holy. It's a hospital for the sick. And we're all sick. And we need the great physician, don't we? And what that means is this. Very practically, it might mean this. That there could be that somebody comes to our church and sits in your favorite seat. And you're like, that's my seat right there. You need to get, get out. 
like we have reserved seats or something. You know what I mean? And you guys, it happens in churches every week. I'm not making it up. It might be that somebody comes to our church and, and they don't smell very nice. You know, maybe they're broken financially. They're broken relationally. They're broken mentally. They're broken spiritually. What is our view of the lost? It's the same as the father's. We love those who are far away. Why? Because we were once far away. Because we were living in the pig pen. Because we were angry one day. Because we were expecting, you know, God to deliver based on our performance. And so I think the question is, will our response reflect the Father's love for the lost? And as I think about, you know, and I've mentioned this before, but, you know, as I think about the direction that our culture is going in. I mean, our culture is all in to the sexual revolution. All in. And the consequences of that in people's lives emotionally is going to be devastating as people go all in with it. And they're going to be coming home to church looking for healing and hope and love. And man, my prayer is they find that here. They find that here. As more and more people question whether there's, you know, right and wrong and good and bad and absolute truth, as more and more people doubt that, you know, they're going to they're gonna feel the effects of it. And so I hope when they make their way here that they're loved and embraced for, for who, who they are and who they could be in Christ. I, I don't know if you know the name Mike Bro, but uh, he's, he's now a pastor in Chicago. Um, but he used to pastor in Lexington, Kentucky. He pastored this uh, church right downtown Lexington, Kentucky. And so one day he was, he was kind of talking about, you know, this, this whole thing of, loving those who are spiritually lost. And, and uh, he decided to do something kind of really risky. He dressed up as a homeless person. And so he just put layers and layers of, you know, kind of stinky old clothes and he put on a disguise and he came in like 10 minutes before church started. And he just wanted to see how the church would respond to him. He just wanted to see the kind of the love quotient that existed in the church. And, uh, he was kind of taken aback because nobody spoke to him. Nobody went up and welcomed him. Nobody reached out and loved to him. He just kind of sat, you know, just a few rows back all by himself. And, and uh, you know, some college or teenage high school students, you know, kind of snickered at him. And, uh, you know, and he just sat there. And, um, and then it was time for the sermon. And it got really awkward because there was no preacher, except he started to get up and walk on stage and started taking off his disguise. And all of a sudden, uh, the sermon had already been preached, right? And so I, I don't know how our church would respond to that. I, I don't know. I might try it. You probably recognize my bald head or something. I don't know. Um, but I do know this, that, that Jesus Christ put on the clothing of human flesh and he emptied himself of his riches and his power and he came to earth and we crucified him. But, but what the gospel is, is this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He loved the lost. 
He loved the sinners, you and me. Let's do the same. The love of Christ compels us. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that we would be a different kind of church. Lord, that we would be a church that reflects your love of the lost. At one time, we were enemies of God. We were, we were objects of wrath, but, but through your grace, those who are far away have been brought near. Praise be to God for that. Lord, I ask that this would be a place where we just live the truth, where we acknowledge our need for grace every day, and we see that, like we say all the time, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. God, I pray that our church would, would live that, would be that. Lord, I pray that our church would be a place where the lost come and they're found, where those who are far away are found here, that they know that they're, that they're loved and accepted in you. So we just, we just give you praise. We just give you glory. We, we are blown away at the scandal of grace. We're, we're blown away by it. So God, you just pull us together and may we live for your glory. And we pray this and all of God's people said, amen.